Hey. Good morning. Okay. Hopefully this won't slide down like it did last week. Um, so I mentioned last week, we're just during the summer, we're going to do some one-offs. And it's, again, largely reflections on things that I've been processing in my personal life, processing in, in my quiet time before God. Um, and so this week is about grace. Uh, I do have a question, but I'm not going to ask it right, right now. Um, how many of you have Netflix? So we've all done, I'm assuming, that thing where you want to watch something and you like are looking and looking and then you start something for like a minute and you're like, not tonight. And then you look and then you look. And there's, um, <laughs> that's been happening to me a lot because I've been starting this series and then I'm like, ah, I just don't feel like it. So then I look for something else. And, um, and I've noticed a couple shows over and over again. And it makes me feel awkward because I'm like, why is Netflix suggesting that to me? Like, what is my watching history that says that I would like that? Um, have you ever heard of the expression, the scandal of grace? Scandalous grace. The scandal of grace. Some people have, some people haven't. Um, it's an expression that I've heard several times since I really um, decided to lean into my relationship with Christ more and more, was this idea of grace being a scandalous thing. And why I was thinking about it this week is because on Netflix, the show that keeps on popping up is that show Scandal, right? And it got me thinking. Um, I think we as, a, as Westerners, especially in the United States, I think we really like scandals, don't we? I mean, literally, we have a show that's named Scandal. Media loves it, and obviously the media loves it because we consume it, right? I mean, how long has the National Enquirer been in existence? Scandals that aren't even real. That were like, yes. I don't know how many times I've seen that the Queen of England is dead. I, on, right? Like, we like scandals. We like scandalous things. Um, it's something that we consume rapidly. There's a whole market for it, and, and we love it. I mean, think about, I, I don't know why, but I, I go to Yahoo a lot, which has like been outdated for the last decade. But most of the feeds are just scandalous things. They're not even news anymore. It's just scandal after scandal after scandal. And then they like retract statements, but then don't because the scandal wasn't real. But what is a scandal? I mean, think about it. What is, how would you define a scandal? Gossip. Gossip. So we like our gossip, too, huh? Yeah. Scandal is, is effectively something that's occurred that is against what we would consider to be moral or lawful, right? And so uh, something that's scandalous is something that we look at and say, well, that's, that can't be right. That's not. Well, you know, we have a point of comparison like A. And when B happens, we're like, oh, that, that just can't be. Right. What do you think about that? You think that's a pretty accurate description of something that's scandalous? We have some sort of definition that says what is right, what is good, and then something occurs that says, well, that's in, in direct contradiction to that. Right? I don't know, just a crazy example that, that comes into my head is um, recently uh, Titus has moved my my you know, two-year-old, for those of you that haven't met him. He moved from the, 
the backwards facing to the forward facing car seat because he's, I guess he's really, really heavy for a two-year-old. <laughs> um, and really tall. And, um, and so now he's decided that he wants to sit in the front seat, which, don't worry, I don't let him do. <laughs> but I was thinking, if I did that, like there was a, a, a scandal that I saw the other day where a, a guy, instead of using a car seat, uh, had a 12-pack of beer. And that was a car seat. Scandalous. That's a booster seat, yeah. <laughs> Scandalous, right? As long as it was strapped. As long as it. And the guy's name was Brett Buffington, right? <laughs> but, but that would be scandalous, right? To, to come up on a child, can you imagine the officer that pulled up on that? And it was like, scandalous. B does not equal A in this scenario, right? But we, I'm just like, I was like, are you kidding me? What did I do? I clicked on it, and I, I read it. We love it. We love it. I'm guilty of it as well. And the interesting thing is, is that I think grace is probably the most scandalous thing that we'll ever encounter. Why I get excited about that fact is because, as a society, we love scandals. So it stands within reason that if we understand the scandalous nature of grace, people will consume that more than anything else. At least that's my reasoning. Why? Because we love scandals. Grace is so scandalous that it's unbelievable. And if you've ever experienced grace in your life, you know what I'm talking about. Specifically, when you're in kind of the throes of being that person that uses the beer as a booster seat kind of scenario, right? When you're like, whatever I'm receiving right now, just there's nothing that I could possibly do to earn this. That is the scandal of grace. Because it, it doesn't, you know, um, the thing about Jesus is he came in the midst of the law. So there is this whole legal system, there is this whole ethical code by which Jews were to live by. And suddenly, Jesus is saying, these people that don't live in this code, don't live in this lawful way, I'm drawing close to them. The tax collectors and the prostitutes and the leopards and the bleeding woman and the man with the withered hand. And then we keep going into Acts, and you see God encountering people like the Ethiopian eunuch, which I've preached on before, too. Just all these people that society would say, just the fact that you're alive is scandalous. And Jesus says, no, the scandal is, is that I love them and I draw close to them. So I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. And so this is my, well, I asked some other questions, didn't I? But this is my, my first real question. What is grace? So take a moment, think about that. Share amongst yourselves, what is grace? How would you define grace? And then we'll come back together. How would you define grace? What is grace?
the reality is, is just like uh, anything else, the way that we define this term grace is ultimately what we live by. So depending on how you see, it's not just the definition about grace, okay? It's not just how we define grace. It's how grace defines us. So interestingly, all of your definitions, I'm like, yes. Yeah. But when it becomes active in our lives, do we feel like God gives us that unconditional forgiveness? Or do we really struggle with that? Are, those, are there these actions or these things that we do that we say, oh, I don't think that grace can touch that? And see, even if we have the right definitions, it doesn't mean that we ultimately live by that. So I really, my hope is, is that I wouldn't just give you the right definition of what grace is, but I would actually see it activated in your life. That it's something that you could fully live in and lean into in tangible ways in your life. So it's not just something that, you know, that is here, but it is here and here and at your feet and carries you throughout your day. And I felt like one of the, I've preached from Ephesians 2 several times over the past year, um, a couple years really, but I wanted to do it again. Uh, the reason why the bulletin said, uh, page 950 is originally I was just going to start from verse 10. But um, there is a contrast in this passage that I think is worth pointing out because it is this sort of because of this, this statement. So I at least want to read it again so you can hear what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. Um, I love the Ephesians. I think that they are a radical group of people just so you understand the type of people that Paul is writing to. At one point, they were the the witches and the Wiccans of their era. I mean, they were the people that were into all sorts of crazy stuff. But as a result of Jesus in their midst, suddenly they're like the full 180. And suddenly they're deeply passionate for this God, Emmanuel. So page 949, I'll just read it to you. It says, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. Now when I talk about witchcraft and that kind of stuff, I think uh, this next part makes a lot more sense. In which, in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us, once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, followed, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. I say all of us because that's all of us. Um, I, I want to point out, though, and I think this is something that um, the church has not done a very good job of, is pointing out when it says desires of flesh and senses, I don't think that Paul is saying desire is sinful. It's that embodiment of your desire. It's the, look at it, it says flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. It's saying that rather than God setting the trajectory of life, it's saying how I feel, my desires, the things that I want is going to set the way forward for my life. There's no sort of, but what does God have to say about this? And I think Paul points that out because ultimately that's how grace comes alive, is to say this is how I feel, this is what I think, this is my desire, this is even my flesh. But what do, what do you have to say about this? What does grace have to say? 
So verse 4 on page 950. But God, and this is what I'm going to do, because you know I like my definitions, I'm going to define some of these words in Greek for you so you can understand. Like in, in some ways, Paul rewriting in a different way. I'm going to hopefully provide the depth of what's happening here. So I'm going to pause every once in a while. But God, who is rich in mercy, the Greek word for rich, is, it means abundant. See, when we think of rich, what's the first thing that we think of? Money. Money. Wealth. Wealth, right? But here, it's abundancy. So when it says, but God who is abundant, there's another way to say it. It exceeds normal experience. So even in this concept of richness, it's like, have you ever gotten that paycheck that you thought you were going to get this amount, and then you got this amount? Usually, it's like too much taxes were taken out or something like that, right? But every once in a while, you get that unexpected bonus. You're like, oh my goodness. Or that card from a family member, especially when you're a little kid that has a check or the $5 bill or something like that, and you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I just thought I was going to get a birthday card. Now I can buy that whatever. So it is exceedingly beyond our normal expectations. This idea of mercy now. So, But God who is abundant in mercy. What is, what is mercy to you? Forgiveness. It's kind of like grace. I mean, it says abundant in mercy. The word in, in Greek means compassionate clemency or leniency. So he's abundant in the way that he provides compassion and leniency. So it's not just like, I don't know, I, sometimes because I don't want to argue with my six-year-old, I'm like, yeah, just whatever, do it. Leniency. But that's not necessarily compassionate, is it? It's more like, would you just leave me alone? <laughs> right? But here he says he's abundant in compassionate leniency. So he's looking at the things that we're doing, those ways of desires and, and feelings and stuff like that that are unhealthy for us. And he's looking at it, and he's saying, yeah, whatever, just do it. He's saying like, oh, my goodness, what is that? It breaks my heart that this is happening to you. It breaks my heart that this is the way that you would think or the way that you would go. And it's not so much judgment, because it would have said compassionate judgment, doesn't it? But instead, it's compassionate leniency. It's to say, we need to go on a journey together through this. And I'm going to abundantly do that to you. So my compassion is going to be this way where it's going to look at these things that could easily destroy you. And instead, I'm going to say, what does it mean to walk alongside of you? Compassionate, clemency, leniency. I'll keep on going. Out of the great love with which he loved us. Now, this is probably one of my favorite parts. Out of the great love. What's love to you? How would you define love? Lots of questions this morning, I know. But, but you see, the reason why I'm asking these questions is because this is something that's supposed to give us life. Depending on how we define these words is how we're going to live, right? I keep on saying that. What is love to you? Great love. Happiness? Happiness? Okay. 
endearment, affection. I'm just saying stuff from Paula. <laughs> Loyalty, okay. Sacrifice. There are different versions of love, apparently. The word in Greek, there's kind of three. It's one's love. The next one is fellowship meal. Mm. Fellowship meal. And then my favorite definition is love feast. Love feast. Have you ever had a love feast before? <laughs> I won't go there. I won't say it with Paul. <laughs> Out of the great love feast. I mean, what would a love feast with God look like? What a, I mean, maybe it's, I, immediately when we think of love feasts, it's like this romantic thing. But maybe if we pulled back from the romance picture and just said, have you ever been around somebody that gives you their undivided attention and you know it? There is nothing going on in the world that would distract them from you. And they hang on every word. And they look in your eyes and they say, and you know, without a shadow of doubt, that you're the most important person in the world. Love feast. There's no better place to be than at the table with you. And it's this great love. It's a fellowship meal is the other description, which I love is to say, that fellowship is to say, I, I like to be there with you. Not just that, I mean, because we've all had those like moments in our, our, our moments of infatuation, especially when we were younger and we're like, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. And it's not reciprocated. But fellowship implies that it's a reciprocated experience, right? That you know that you're the apple of that person's eye, but that they also know there is nothing greater than sitting at the table with you. So, but God, who is abundant in his compassionate leniency out of the great love feast with which he loved us. You would think that maybe it would say, like, love feast again. But the term in Greek that's used is actually a little bit different. It's often used for cherished or having affection. So it's out of the great love feast with which he cherished us, gave us affection. Have you ever been cherished before? There's moments that I wake up in the morning and because I still co-sleep with, with Titus, mainly for my own sanity and sleep, um, he wakes up in the morning and he has that like two-year-old breath, which is very different than the six-year-old breath. <laughs> okay? And, he, and, and inevitably, he wakes up and the very first thing that he does is smile at me. And I can't tell you how much I cherish those moments. Like there's something deep in my heart that says, yes, Lord. Right? And I'm just using my two-year-old as an example, but we all have those moments that we just sit there and we drink it in. And we just take in our heads picture after picture after picture 
Because, again, it's something that we can hold with us for the rest of our lives and say yes to. And we know that we can say yes to those things because then we have moments that we don't cherish, that we're like, uh, if I could do something different, that would be great right now. So you know that those moments when the two-year-old sits up and smiles or you have this amazing dessert that you're like, if I could eat this for the rest of my life. But that's the interesting thing about being cherished or cherishing something. It's part of the reason why you cherish it is because you know that it's finite. It ends. And so when it happens again, it's almost like this surprise. Like, oh my goodness, this is so good. So in the way that he cherished us, and it says, and, it, and I, if I'm reading right, I have my contacts in so I know I can see well. It doesn't say even when we were doing all the right things. Even though that we were living life perfectly, even though we said all the right things, did all the right things, we're the perfect little Christians with the perfect statements. And the, it doesn't say that, does it? It says, even when we were dead through our trespasses. I'm interested because trespasses comes up in this particular text twice. So I was like, what does trespasses actually mean? Um, well, it's ordinarily means offenses towards God. That's kind of that first definition. But you know, um, biblical writers were the only people writing at that time. So then there's other people that were writing things about stuff that were important like history or just poetry and arts and all that kind of stuff. More often than not, uh, this term in Greek for trespasses was used, and I'm going to read it to you. It's the imagery of one making a false step as a, as, so as to lose footing. So it's like, you ever been walking and there's that stair that you forgot about? Yeah. All the time? Yeah. <laughs> so we'll pray for Marlene, add her to the list, right? <laughs> but it's that, it's like, surely I'm going to take this next step, and then you're like, oh my gosh. And sometimes you fall, and sometimes you have to grab the banister, or whatever it may be. Trespasses, one making a false step so as to lose footing. Even when we were dead through our trespasses. So against God, or we were taking a step as if we knew the right way, and then suddenly we realized we didn't know at all. He made us alive together with Christ. Another interesting thing about this particular passage, the, in the historical records that we currently have, right? so historians have looked through all these different things, the only authors that have ever written alive together are Christian authors. There's no other author that they've found so far that has said alive together with Christ, or even alive together. Like this shared experience, this what uh, theological term that's, that's often used for father, son, and spirit is perichoresis or interpenetration. It's that they so are, are fully intertwined that you couldn't separate them. That's largely our theology of the Trinity, is that they're so intimately enwoven with one another that you couldn't separate them even if you tried. And here it says, and raised up, by, uh, excuse me, made us alive together with Christ. That in Christ we are so interwoven with his aliveness that you couldn't possibly separate us from that. When we couldn't do anything to earn that, 
So it says, by grace you have been saved. So here is just a definition of grace that a lexicon that talks about Greek words says. Uh, go ahead, Tom, you can put it up there. This is just one definition. Um, the action of one who volunteers to do something not otherwise obligatory. So that's kind of like a base level definition. They volunteer. Have you ever volunteered to do something? <laughs> well, yeah, every week. Many of us experience volunteering for something. Interestingly, it's time that you have to be super intentional about. You have to set it aside. It's not expected of you unless you have a court order, right? Volunteers to do something not otherwise obligatory. You're not obligated to do it. Uh, the other definition that I didn't put up here is, is undeserved gifts of Christ to us. Undeserved. It's not your birthday. It's not Christmas. It's just something you don't deserve that he willfully gives to you, to me. And so it says he voluntarily, he's not obligated to, he voluntarily gives us something, himself. We know the story, right? Died on the cross. He gave up himself for us. And it saved us. Saved us from what? Death. That's the scandal of grace. We all have earned death. I mean, we all have our lists. But he gives us this gift of life. And then it gets more scandalous. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we are in, so interwoven with him that we're seated with him, that somehow our life holds on to the authority of Christ. Now, let's be clear, it's not our authority, it's his authority. But we get to operate in that authority, in that power, in that hope, in that freedom, in that love, in that joy, in that peace, in that wholeness. And the list goes on and on and on. Verse 7. So that in the ages to come. So this is a right now experience. But it doesn't just stop. Like something that's cherished. It's something that continues and continues. So in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable. You remember that word riches? Abundancy that cannot be measured of his grace, something that's not obligatory. Now, this word in, in kindness, what is kindness to you? Nice. Nice. But do you, do you like, sometimes, this is something that I'm learning about kindness. Sometimes you can be kind, but it's not actually from your heart. Like, I can be nice to you. In, in many ways, the way at least that I am learning about kindness is I can be nice to you, but it doesn't mean I have to like you. Right? But that's not the kindness that's being talked about here. And that's why it's very important, because it's saying something the immeasurable abundancy of his grace and kindness. Kindness actually means because he likes us. Newsflash. Scandalous. 
it means something like uprightness, uh, generous goodness. So grace, something he doesn't have to give us. That's upright towards us. It's to our benefit. It's righteous. It's good. So grace isn't just so that way you can keep on doing whatever you want to do. Because we had that. I remember when I was in drug treatment, I can't tell you how many times I wanted to like throw something at people sometimes or more violent things. They would say, the best version of you got you here. And I'm like, no duh. But I don't need you to rub my face in it. And that's in many ways what Paul is pointing out. The best version of you, Ephesians, got you to where it was. Like those desires of the flesh that you think that are so good for you, I don't know, probably not that good. Look what it was doing to you. And he's saying, this grace that I'm giving you, this thing that I'm volunteering to do, that's not out of obligation because I have to because I'm God, is rather this, I, I, I love you so much that what I'm going to give you, and when I picture uprightness, it's like, I always, especially as a kid, used to hear about my posture because I'd be like this. My nickname, this I'm being vulnerable with you, was Lurch from my cousins. Super nice family. <laughs> I was hunched over. Uprightness. It's like I can stand tall because this grace that he's giving me is so good for me. Why? Because it's, an, it's a love feast. It's a love feast. It's rich, but it's not meant to keep me spiritually fat. Grace is meant to be exercised and live, which leads me to this next thing. Uh, it says, this is not your undoing, so nobody can boast here. You didn't earn it. The other scandal, keep on pointing out the scandal. Uh, you've heard me preach on this one before. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Note, the good works are largely an exercising as a result of the love feast. I mentioned last week about that Thanksgiving meal that you have to unbutton your button for. And then shortly thereafter, we have all these New Year's resolutions because we ate too much. It's not meant to be that sort of pattern. Like I'm just supposed to consume the grace, consume the grace, consume the grace, and then I'm suddenly just, well, I feel really spiritually fat, and I feel like I should do a Bible study now, or I should tell somebody about Jesus so that way I can slim down a little bit. It's like, no, the love feast is almost like this fanny pack of goodness. <laughs> and as we're going, we just get to eat it, right? And we get to eat, and we get to eat, and we get to eat, but we get to exercise that. Because we're made for good works. What is good works? Well, first, I want you to consider this question. You can put it up, Tom. Why do you need grace? If you say, I don't, can I, like, touch you or something? <laughs> Can you rub off on me what you have? Why do you need grace? This is a really important question because this requires honesty, requires confession. 
Why do you need grace? What's going on in the shadowy places of your heart that you're like, ooh, I don't want to tell anybody about that, but I could show you yours of your grace. What are the things that you've done that make you feel like, there's no way I could earn or deserve grace? I know that it's freely given, but I can't accept that. Why do you need grace? See, I think that this thing that we are created in Christ Jesus to do is to live holy. In, this is probably the only time you've heard me say this about scandals. Can you live fully into that scandal? Can you? The scandal of grace. The thing that's so unbelievable that people are like, I, I need to know more about this. That thing that when people would expect you to fall apart and you're not, why? I mean, that's scandalous. Um, I keep on trying to point out, maybe, maybe you're not obsessed with gossip and scandals because you're holy, righteous people, right? But maybe the people in your life are. Maybe you're not the consumer of the National Enquirer, but your next door neighbor is. Maybe all they can talk about is that show on Netflix called Scandal. I mean, what an opportunity to say, like, do you know the most scandalous? Let me, let me share with you the most scandalous thing you could possibly ever encounter. And it's not a bait and switch, because it really is scandalous. I, I read something this past week, and it was an interaction between this patriarch in, uh, of the faith in the 700s. It was like 781. And it was a dialogue between a Muslim uh, caliphate leader and this patriarch. And it was this interaction between the two of them. And he was trying to explain the Trinity, and the Muslim caliph was like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, that's ridiculous. And, it, and the question in my class was, um, how, could, how could this Muslim caliphate, this caliph, how could he have understand, understood the Trinity more? And the scandalous thing isn't more theology, it's relationship. Can you imagine how scandalous it would have been for a Christian patriarch, a, a, a Christian leader of the level of this man Timothy to daily break bread with a Muslim leader? Can you imagine how scandalous that would be today? <laughs> no, 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 we can't, do, we can't do that. But that's the scandal that Jesus constantly lived in. His grace compelled him to be alongside the people that we would normally cast out. Why do you need grace? See, I think part of the reason why we push people away is because, for whatever reason, we think we don't need grace. But when you know how much grace you require, you can't help but give that love feast to other people. I'm going to say one more thing, and then we'll move to communion together. Um, I would just want to briefly make a comment about what grace can look like in your life. So I've told you, and I almost wore it today because it's the summertime, and maybe I can. It's acceptable. I almost wore my T-shirt with Jesus surfing without a surfboard. And I've, and I've talked about that. I put the picture up there. And I've often thought of grace as like moving with a wave, right? That 
that you can't create it, it's just there, and you get to ride that wave, right? But when I was in Florida a couple weeks ago, there was a, um, a morning that I woke up super early, and I, and I was blessed to be in a place where I could see the ocean. And, you know, you would expect to see waves, or I would expect to see waves and to hear them crashing, but the water was glass. Just glass. And the thing, as I was praying about grace, and that's part of the reason why I'm preaching about this, is because for so much of my life, grace has been this wave to ride, but I think grace is also stillness. Grace is just glass. Sometimes it's meant to be ridden, and it's cyclical. But I think other times it's just stillness and meant to be soaked in. And that was affirmed this week because the boys have been begging me to go to the beach. And so I went to Newport Beach with them. And of course, the one day that I choose, there's this warning that says, Waves are going to be seven feet tall. <laughs> I'm like, yes. Exciting. But I think sometimes grace is stillness. Because if it's like a wave, instead of it's, if it's something being that we can ride, instead it beats us up because we don't know how to deal with it. I think sometimes grace is meant to just be soaked in and sat in. Because if we try to ride those seven-foot waves, have you ever been cut in like an undertow or gotten trapped in those riptides? I mean, I was sitting there as a father watching my six-year-old run out. And he's like crazy. I mean, he really is. He's like, oh, seven-foot waves. Let's just jump right in. I'm like, you can't swim that well. And I'm, and I'm thinking of this parallel. I'm not trying to over-spiritualize, but I'm like, if this is grace and he just dives in, he's going to die. It's going to chew him up and spit him out. And I think, my goodness, that's me too. So sometimes grace is so scandalous that if I just jumped right in, it would spit me out. It would eat me alive. So I think there is something about this. That's a process, right? It's like coming when it says being made alive. It's Grace is also sometimes just realizing slowly but surely how alive we actually are. And a lot of life is waiting in stillness, and I think that we need to be more receptive to that. Because there's grace in the midst of waiting in stillness just as much as there is when we ride that seven-foot, that 20-foot wave. Because we'll, there'll be those moments too. So why do you need grace? And then I don't have a question, but what kind of place are you in right now? Do you need to be riding some waves of grace and allow God to take you places? Or do you just need to sit in stillness and allow that grace to wash over you? Almost like a soaking tub. What is God saying to you this morning?